Last week, we saw obedience to unnecessary rules can be an act of love that reflects the gospel. I, would, I want to wrap up what Paul's demonstration of Christ-like love looks like and then see how, it, how he responds and what are the response of the people in this section in Acts chapter 21. As we're making our way through this narrative, we need to keep in mind the context of the events. Some people asked me last week after the message uh, why Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians chapter 2 for keeping the law, but here in Acts chapter 21, Paul himself keeps the law. If you take your Bibles and you don't have to go there now, I don't want to get too far off track, but you can mark this in your notes. Go read Galatians chapter 2. You're going to see Paul rebukes Peter for keeping the law. What, there are some important uh, things to keep in mind as we answer this question. Why does he rebuke him for keeping the law but then keeps the law when he walks into Jerusalem? The answer is context. 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 Very, very important. The context. Where was Paul and Peter when Paul rebukes Peter? Well, he rebuked him when he was in Antioch where it was a predominantly... Gentile church mixed in with some Jews that came for a visit. Antioch was the Gentile land. Remember, that's where the church was that sent Paul on the first missionary journey. And it was a mix. What did Paul do, or what did Peter do wrong in that context in Galatians chapter 2? Well, he ate with the Gentiles and ate his... I wonder if he ate pig. I'm not sure if he ate pig or, or pork or not. But he would eat with them, hang out with them, fellowship with them. And then the Jews from Jerusalem show up and Peter says, I'm not eating with you anymore. I'm going to go sit with the Jews and I'm going to act like a Jew. And I'm going to set myself or separate myself from the Gentiles. This gave a mixed message to the Gentile believers in Galatia in the letter of Galatians that uh, Paul talks about. Again, it's in Antioch, but he's talking about it in Galatian, in the Galatian letter. Peter was saying to the Gentiles, the law was fulfilled by Jesus. He said that by sitting with them and eating with them. And the Gentiles were not obligated to keep the law. That's what he was saying until what? The Jews showed up. He was saying there is one body. But when the Jews showed up, Peter was saying... There's still two bodies. There's a barrier wall. The law is still here. And Peter was placing himself under the law of separation for the fear of being condemned by the Jews. And so was he doing it out of love? No, he was doing it out of fear. And in fact, he was elevating the law to a place that it shouldn't have had. Peter wasn't doing this for love of his Jewish brethren, and he definitely wasn't thinking about the Gentiles at all when he did it. However, in Acts chapter 21, Paul is in Jerusalem. What is that? A Jewish city. Lots of Jews are there. And a predominantly Jewish audience was what Paul was trying to reach. And Paul is advised to keep the law to help the new believers in Jesus not to stumble. This is a huge difference. A different location and a different audience, a different context. This is some very important things. And this is something for all of us to think on too. When We, we often apply the Bible for our own good. <laughs> we need to be careful of applying the Bible for the context that it matches the Bible. That's very important to think on. All of us will often use the Bible to thump others. But we won't look at the context that we are in and remember what does the Bible say to our circumstance. So today we see Paul chose love over liberty so he could edify some and win others. Again, I'll say that again. Paul chose love over liberty so he could edify some and win others. All of us who have been loved by Christ 
we'll choose love over liberty for our context. We understand that, correct? We don't hear that though today, do we? In our circles, especially many of the young, restless, and reformed circles, they will choose liberty over love. They will choose liberty because I'm free. I can do whatever I want. But what that does is it shows that they have forgotten their first love. And they were more interested in what? Themselves and their liberty. Liberties are given to us for the purpose of what? Laying them down or loving others. Today we will see even when we choose love over liberty, we can be rejected and persecuted. And that's important. Even when we do what is right, even when we sacrifice for others, there's always going to be somebody there to smack you and make you stay humble, even in the kind acts that you do. Our passage breaks down into three, uh, I'm sorry, a little bit small, but three sections. <laughs> Loyal love towards his kinsmen. Ruthless rejection by his kinsmen and providential protection for his kinsmen. Providential protection for his kinsmen. Let's start with loyal love towards his kinsmen. Look again at 20 to 26 of Acts. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore... Do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you. But you yourselves also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from the blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. We saw here that Paul was called to put himself under the law for the sake of the brethren his Jewish kinsmen. Remember, we left off with this passage over in 1 Corinthians 9. Look over there. Look over at 1 Corinthians 9. And I, I think it's a perfect explanation of why Paul did what he did in Jerusalem. I want to detail this a little bit better in 1 Corinthians 9.19. He states in 1 Corinthians 9.19... For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew, as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. How many of us can say that little phrase? That last little phrase, profound, isn't it? I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do some things for the sake of the gospel. No, all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 
Paul understood the law of Moses was not binding on the Jew anymore or the Gentile. He was, as it states in 1 Corinthians 9.19 and 20, free from all men and not under the law. That's what 19 and 20 say. He's not under the law. Paul's sacrificial commitment to his Jewish brethren, his fellow kinsmen, led him to place himself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. That's what he did when he went into Jerusalem. He placed himself under the law of Moses in order to win those who are under the law. Notice Paul doesn't say he is a lawless man. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.21. He states the ruling principle in his life is the law of God or the law of Christ. Is there a distinction? I believe there is. There's a distinction between the law of Moses and the law of Christ and the context for each passage tells you which one he's talking about. Now they overlap at times. Okay, they overlap at times. But ultimately here he's showing the distinction. So what is this law of Christ? It's the controlling commandment of Christ. And what is this controlling commandment? I believe it's Jesus' new commandment that he gives and explains in John 13, 34. Look over there. John 13, 34, I believe this is the law of Christ. You can summarize it with what Jesus says to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. Right before his death, he says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's the key phrase. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Friends, Loyal love to other believers, like Jesus was loyal in his love towards others, is sacrificial. It's committed love. It's unconditional love. It's compassionate love. It's love in action. This is what Jesus showed to his people. So when Paul walks into Jerusalem, he loves just like Jesus loved when he walked into Jerusalem. He did the same thing. And by the way, the same result almost happens. In very much the same way, we see it in our passage today. What did they say to him? Away with you. When was the last time they said that? When Jesus was there, away with you. The same things happen. But this is what loving shepherds do. They sacrifice. They're loyal to even those that hate them. It's a joyful duty to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. So, this is what Paul was doing in Acts 21. Turn back over there. So, when the elders of the church in Jerusalem told Paul to keep certain aspects of the law, to avoid new brethren stumbling over him, he was joyfully concurring to what they asked him to do. He did it with joy. Remember what they told him. We see this in 22 to 24. What should we do? Look at 22 or 21, 22. They were certainly here that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have these four men who are under a vow. And they are most likely are a Nazarite vow. And they're purifying themselves. And he should purify himself with them. And he should make these sacrifices for them. Now, I do want to make another point on this passage before that I I briefly mentioned last week. I want to make sure because a couple of people wanted some clarity on this. I believe most of the New Testament or the new Jewish believers in Jesus did not consider the law of Moses a burden. I want you to make that note in your mind because a lot of people think, well, were these Jews that had become believers, were they like, oh, no, we got to go to the temple again? No, they were believers in Jesus. How did they look at celebrating the feast? How did they look at keeping the Sabbath, for lack of a better term? How did they think of eating pork? They thought what? Just like Peter did. What did Peter think when that 
thing falls down from the sky and he sees the vision, arise, kill, and eat. What did he say? By no means, nothing unclean's hit my lips. So what, he, what happens when thousands of Jews come to Christ? What are they going to be thinking? If Peter thought that, the apostle, what do you think all these people are going to be thinking? No way. These new believers are what? They're trying to keep the law, and they try to keep the law what? With joy. Christ fulfilled it. I understand that. So let's go keep the law. This is what we've been taught all our life. Now I actually go to the temple with the right heart attitude. I go with a thankful heart. So this is very important. That's why if a, a Jewish person comes to Christ, even today, and they keep the Sabbath, if a Jewish person, make that note, if a Jewish person comes to Christ, and they say, well, you know, I really like to take off Saturdays. I mean, I've done this all my life. It's not something I have to do, but I get to do this, and they're a new believer in Jesus. I don't think I'm going to rebuke them. You say, well, that makes sense. You take off, you've taken off every Saturday from when you were a child. You were taught that you should do this. Okay. Now, the reality is, is that you don't have to, right? You're not required to, but you're welcome to. We're free to. So when they came to Christ, these previous burdens as an effect, because a lot of the law was a burden to them, believe it or not. Why? Because they knew, most, many of the Jews knew what? I can't keep it perfectly. If they were really convicted by the Holy Spirit, they knew that they couldn't keep it perfectly. But inside Christ, they wanted to do what? They joyful opportunities. Let's keep it. So when Paul walks in and thousands have come to Christ, what are the elders saying? Hey, remember these guys. Be careful. Go ahead and put yourself under this because after all, they're going to be watching. We don't want them to stumble and we want to help them mature and walk with Christ. They don't say, they don't say that it's a requirement for the Gentiles and they do make that clarification, didn't they? They say the Gentiles don't have to do that. Where it gets a little different, though, is trying to explain to these new Jews who have believed in Jesus what was the requirement in the Old Covenant and what, what are those requirements? Are they still uh, binding on them now? Are they still obligated to do it? Are they still obligated to circumcise their child on the eighth day? Do they, are they required to do that? When you start trying to explain that, what's that going to take? Time. Lots of time. It's going to take patience. So if they are entertaining or ministering to Gentiles, they better understand that this isn't something that they should be requiring. But that's not going to happen overnight. That's going to take days, weeks, months, and maybe even years to get all this through to their minds. How many of you have struggled with discontinuity, continuity? That is... What is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? The distinctions. Anybody struggle with that? Okay. Are you still struggling with it? Okay. How long is it going to take for you to really get it? Maybe the rest of our life. So what's Paul do? He goes into Jerusalem and says, I'm not going to fix all these things right away. I'm going to go ahead and submit myself to these things in order to help what? Sanctify the believer and win the lost. What is this? This is shocking love, folks. That's what it is. Shocking love. Look at verse 26. What's he do? Verse 26, Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until, now this one's shocking, isn't it? Until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now, everybody... Anybody that's read through the book of Hebrews at this point is going, sacrifice? He killed an animal? He killed several animals, it appears? You're kidding the apostle, Paul? The blood of bulls and goats does not what? Purify sin. What is he doing? 
He made sacrifices. Why? Loyal love. Loyal, sacrificial love. It submits to even unnecessary rules. He has spent a whole week purifying himself from being in the Gentiles. Was it because he had to? No. Was it because he feared the Jews like Peter and Antioch? No. Was it because he had nothing better to do? <laughs> this one's a tricky one. Because after all, as he came to Jerusalem, what was all the Gentiles saying to him? What were they saying? Stay. Please stay. Just talk to us. You don't have to purify anything. Just tell us about Jesus. You don't have to make any sacrifices. No. Not even that. He was doing it because he loved his kinsmen. And he did it anyway. But Paul, uh-oh, careful. But Paul, because of his great love with which he had for his kinsmen, sacrificially loved those believers, edifying them and wanting to win others. Does that sound familiar? He's just like the God that bought him. He's just like Christ. He's loving just like God loves. There's so many implications here for all of us. We must view unreasonable and unnecessary requests through the lens of love. We must see when somebody asks us to do something that seems like, well, I don't have to do that. But what would be the loving thing to do? Don't we see these kind of requests all the way through all the epistles? They're everywhere. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Guess who's in control? Nero. Listen, it's going to get better. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What could Peter have said to these persecuted Christians. He could have said, hey, seek a safe place in another city so that when they persecute you, you have a shelter from evil so that you can continue to spread the gospel. Did you hear me? He could have told them to what? Run and hide. And by the way, would that have been wrong advice? No, that would not have been necessarily wrong biblical advice. But in this case, he tells them to keep their behavior excellent and what? Submit to it. Stay there. And when they persecute you, endure it. Why? The sake of the gospel. Why? Because of the love of Christ. The law of Christ calls us to do crazy things. Things that the that seem to be unnecessary to the world. The world looks at you and says, what's the law of love tell you to do? It says, be gentle and kind to those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. That's what the law of love says. Does it say that? Jesus said it. Another example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Submit yourself to, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Who's the implied foolish men? Probably the government officials. And all those that are around them and approve of them. So what's the point? Submit yourself to foolish people. Really? Yes. Why? The law of love. The law of love. Boy, doesn't that go against everything our culture is telling us right now? It's the opposite of what you are all being told right now. We're being told the exact opposite. How about this one? 1 Peter 2.17 Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. I don't know about you, but I don't see any honoring going on anywhere in our culture. Is there? 
Nobody's being honored. Romans 13.8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. This does not mean don't take out a loan, beloved. It means don't do anything that will require us to make restitution for a person we've offended. In other words, don't do anything that hurts anyone in any way. That's a high bar, isn't it? What would drive us to do this and be like this? To never return revile for revile. What will drive you to be that way? The law of love. Knowing Christ. Knowing how much he loves you. That will cause you to do these things. Romans 13.10 Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Well, what if your neighbor is rude to you? Our culture says if your neighbor is rude to you, what should you do? Be rude back. Matter of fact, do a better job at being rude. Have we not seen it in the politics this week? I don't know about you guys. It's like shocking, isn't it? You stand back, one guy barbs one guy. Fifteen minutes later, they're barbing the other guy. Whatever you do, don't read Twitter. It's unbelievable. killing each other. And what's even worse is Christians come out and participate in it. This is what Paul did in Jerusalem. He walked into Jerusalem and he loved his kinsmen. Not because he had to to fulfill, fulfill the law of Moses, but because in loving them this way, he would fulfill the law of Christ. I think all too often we are looking for loopholes instead of sacrificially loving one another. We're looking for a way out. When someone tells us we shouldn't do something that we don't like, we think this. Hey, who are you? I can do what I want. I'm free in Christ. That's what we think. And when someone tells us to do something that we don't like, don't do something, now it's do something that we don't like. We say, I have to do that? No way. I'm not under the law. I'm okay. I'm free. Let me go. Leave me alone. Again, what's the key there? Me. Leave me alone. You're not ready to sacrificially love if you're defending yourself. But love hears requests like this and asks, what is the most Christ-like thing that I can do? In what way can I serve these people the most? By the way, loving people doesn't mean we participate in their hypocrisy. It doesn't mean that. Liberty is never used to participate in sin with others. Again, by the way, I think this speaks to the language issue. I've heard this. Oh, my. We're actually debating whether or not we can use four-letter words in common conversation with each other in Christian circles. Who in the world comes up with this kind of debate? It does not make sense. There are Christians out there who are saying four-letter words are fine because that's part of the culture. So we're free to speak like the pagans to win some. What? If the pagan kills somebody else, does that make it right? Oh, well, our culture's a culture of death. Let's go ahead and kill some people because we might win some of those that are killing. That makes no sense, does it? Our words are supposed to be about edifying. We're supposed to be about building each other up. We're supposed to be about loving each other. As believers in Christ... We should be so distinct that people would say everything that comes out of that person's mind is always encouraging. It's always loving. Again, we don't, can I say a dirty word, a four-letter word in Christ? Aren't we asking the wrong question altogether? Is that even a legitimate question? 
Is that the most loving thing to do? Is that what Christ would do? I don't think Christ would do it. I know Christ wouldn't do it because he uttered no threats. He was loving. Here in Acts 21, Paul chooses the loving thing to do, doesn't he? What is shocking is that last little phrase in Acts 26, or 21-26, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Again, this does not mean Paul was saying that sacrifices were necessary for sanctification in Christ. It was to show his own willingness to love the brethren. By the way, all of you who have a problem with the pre-mill physician, yeah, this is a little bit of side note, of sacrifices during the millennium, well, Paul made a sacrifice here. So is it possible that there would be a loving way to do a sacrifice in the millennium? Possibly. Ezekiel could be applied to the millennium, just saying. Either way, we must understand Paul is not doing this to reestablish the law of Moses for believing Jews. He was showing love to his fellow Jewish believers, new believers, seeking to glorify God through obedience to an already accomplished law of Moses. Again, we all need to ask ourselves daily, listen closely, how can I love like this? In our context, this context, this may look a little bit different. Maybe some of us need to get our hands dirty instead of try to keep our hands clean. You understand what I mean by that? Maybe some of us need to clean some toilets. About that. That would be the loving thing to do, wouldn't it? Change some dirty diapers, fathers. Serve a co-worker who's on the same level and for some reason thinks they're above you. None of us have ever had that happen, right? You know, those guys are on the same level and they, will you do this? Will you do that? Why don't you do it? <laughs> I mean, you get paid the same. Matter of fact, I've, I've been here longer than you. Have you ever thought that? How about this one? If you're the employer actually doing something for the employee, oh, no, don't do that. Like Jesus washing feet, maybe? Oh, maybe we shouldn't do that one. This is what Paul was doing here, showing loyal love to his kinsmen. So what's the reaction to this loyal love? How do they react to Jerusalem? You got this guy showing off Christ, and he's loving like Christ loved. Same way. What do they do? Same thing. Look at it. The re ruthless rejection by his kinsmen, verses 27 to 30. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. What? And the law and this place. Besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, this pagan Gentile. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. This is one of those moments in the narrative that the reader should be shocked. I mean, the elders tell Paul to do something that appears to be a little over the top, right? Go purify yourself, make a couple sacrifices, spend a week of purifying yourself. And Paul's thinking, he's got to be thinking, wait, I'm not, but okay, I'll do this. This is okay. This is a little weird. And Paul graciously and in love with joy submits himself to it. And Paul not only participates in the celebration of Pentecost, but he also purifies himself and even makes sacrifices. And what does it get him? All this love, what's it get him? Persecution. All he gets 
is trumped up false charges, a mob that attacks him, taken captive by his fellow Jews, and then they beat him with the idea of trying to kill him. Notice it says, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. Who were these Jews from Asia? They were from Ephesus, most likely, from the place he had left. In Acts 19.9, these were the ones that when some were becoming hardened and disobedient of the Jews, speaking evil of the way before the people, Paul had withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. So what's his point? Up in Ephesus and Asia, you got these Jews that what? They weren't listening anymore. They were just speaking evil against the way. What does he do? He withdraws from them and begins to teach in some other place. What he was probably doing is he was teaching about all these things, about the discontinuity-continuity issue. He was talking about what the law of Moses is being accomplished, and now we're under the law of Christ because Christ has loved us, not to earn any kind of salvation, but because God is enough. He's good, and he satisfies, and he loves us. He's probably teaching this in Asia, and what do they do? They get angry. No, it's about us. It's about what we do. And so what happens? He goes down to Jerusalem, and they are there for Pentecost. And they see him. And they turn on him. Now we've got a bigger crowd. Now we're in Jerusalem. When we were in Asia, we were the what? Minority. Now we're in Jerusalem, and where are we? We're in the majority. Let's take him. Let's get him. Isn't this a twist of irony here? Paul is persecuted for something he didn't do while he was doing something he wasn't really required to do. What? This is crazy. He's doing a loving thing, and yet he's persecuted. And they give these wrong charges. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Have you ever been mistreated while you were trying to do something kind? Anybody? You know how many times I've heard people come up to me and say, you know, I was trying to serve the boss and he accused me of something doing, doing something wrong. I'm just going to stop doing anything kind. No. <laughs> Forget that. I'm not going to do that extra work because it gets me in trouble. Welcome to the world. That's what it's like. Have you ever been falsely accused while you were trying to do something nice? Yeah, it happens. Even worse, how about this one? And that's what I try to do in my Bible study, and it's those moments when I'm going through. And even worse, have you ever accused somebody falsely while they were trying to do something kind? You ever done that? No, none of you do it, right? I did it last night. I had to repent and ask my little Luke for forgiveness. We came home, we were all tired, exhausted, no excuse. The guys were getting into the cookies. We said one. And I walk into the bathroom, and Luke's in there with a the cookie. Hmm. He stole another cookie. You're hiding in the bathroom with a cookie. What are you doing, little man? And he looks up at me and little tears drop from his eye. I was trying to turn the shower on for Caleb. Ow. And then I'm preaching through this message and I'm working on it. I had already repented. I had already asked him to forgive me, but it was like the double whammy. Oh, yeah. Better get right with you, God. Beloved, we are so much like this, aren't we? Next we see, the, then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. 
This was obviously a harsh arrest, wasn't it? In fact, we see in verse 31, they were attempting to kill him. And then in verse 32, the guards stopped them from beating him. So if they were trying to kill him, what was happening to him? They were beating him to death. Paul was getting beaten to death. Here's this guy, he's just trying to love people. Thankfully, son, I didn't give you a spanking for that cookie. Here, Paul took a beating. They were trying to kill him. So it appears the sacrificially loving Paul gets beaten, a beating with the intent of killing him. We can only imagine how brutal this was. But we all know, isn't it like this when a mob says, I'm going to kill that guy? Can you imagine a mob of thousands of people? Seeking to kill one man, it could be a bad place. What do you think? This is so humbling to me. Again, I can have a problem with, I have a problem when somebody says a cross word to me. My wife might say just one little statement that she's not even meaning anything bad. She can just say, what did you mean by that? Are you questioning me? I have a problem with a couple words. Paul's getting beaten to the point of death. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't, I would have sought any way I could to get out of the circumstance. And even better, I probably would have done the old John and James situation. If I were the Apostle Paul, I would have been like, okay, fire from heaven now. Go ahead, take them. They're, they're kicking me in the face. Go ahead, God, have at it. Anybody else in the room? That would have been my first thought. My second thought when I was being carried over the crowd by the, by the guards would have been something like this. I'm not coming back in this town ever again. I am never going to talk about the gospel. They are going to get what they deserve. Yes, it's vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I can't wait till they get what they deserve. Isn't that what some of us, all of us in the room might have been thinking? But not Paul. He gets there, they carry him up, and he speaks with the guards and says, will you please let me talk to him again? And so when he comes out, you think, well, he's just going to blast them, right? No. He says, I'm just like you. I persecuted the church. I'm a sinner. You'll see that in the coming weeks. This is what spirit-led people do. They love. Again, I've been so discouraged this week with the news. All these politicians are so rude and mean to each other. And by the way, no one is innocent. And no, I am not endorsing anybody. You're not hearing it. It's like this in every facet of our culture. Everyone is looking to get even. Everyone's trying to outdo the other. We are a country of arrogant bullies. That's what we are. And what's amazing to me is we love these arrogant bullies. Again, this is how wicked our hearts are, folks. This is how wicked we are. We rejoice in the prideful. Humility is a weakness in our culture. Pride is a strength.
what should we expect from the pagan nations? This is exactly who we are. We're a pagan nation. But I will tell you something. It can't be us. It better not be anybody in this room. And when it is, repentance better be in order. Beloved, if we know Christ and Him crucified, we will act like Christ and Him crucified. We will look like Christ and Him crucified. What character group do you look most like? Those who reject Christ or those who are the brutal antagonists or who submit to brutal antagonists, always seeking to, to love people even when they mistreat you? At the end of the day, we all need to make sure we choose love over ruthless rejection, always. No, this doesn't mean accept false doctrine for the sake of peace, like many of the false teachers out there. But it also doesn't mean allow your pride to cause us to make us to make it our mission to stamp out anyone who opposes us. All too often, folks, we have forgotten that phrase, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and we say, it is my mission to make that person look like an idiot. I think there needs to be a lot more tears and prayers and a lot less anger and vitriol. Christians, that includes us. Like a lamb led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Does that characterize you? We see next, and finally, despite the beating, Paul was taken. God's providential care still takes care of him. Look, providential protection. Look at 31 to 36. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commanders of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took them along some soldiers and centurions, And ran down to them. And when they had saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when they could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! What do we have? This is God's providential protection. He brings in the Roman guards to protect Paul. They come in. The soldiers immediately ran when they heard of a chaos that had interrupted. And they go, what are they? They are the hand of God to protect Paul from this chaos. The arrival of the soldiers stopped the persecution. And the Roman commander took Paul into custody. And at that very exact moment, Acts chapter 21 verse 11 was fulfilled. His hands were bound and they carried him. Again, this is such an important point of God's providence. God knows with perfect details what will happen to every single one of us before it happens. This includes our persecution. When you are mistreated, listen, when you are mistreated, it's part of God's plan for you. How do we respond? Oh, we cannot miss this. This is what it's all about. Next time somebody throws that jab at you, that barb, that un clear expectation to do something that they really don't have the right to ask you to do, remember this. 
Remember, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to show off the glory of Christ and realize that it could only get worse. It could be tougher. But what do we have? We have the grace of God. We have the God that loves us, the God that protects us, the God that cares for us. Does that mean that we're always going to be protected? No, but if we die, where do we go? Heaven. And that's so much better. Again, it's, it seems at times that it would be so much easier to go through what Paul went through in this circumstance than those little barbs that we get from our spouse, right? My wife never does that, by the way. Do you understand? Next week we'll call, cover Paul's testimony. But, beloved, I, I cannot stress to you this one verse. What was Paul doing? He was doing exactly what Jesus did. He was doing Isaiah 53 because his Savior had done it for him. Like a lamb led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we know that this kind of love and this kind of sacrifice and this kind of commitment only happens when we know how much you love us. So it is my plea, Lord, for the people of this church to understand the height and depth and length and breadth of God's love towards them in Christ Jesus. Oh, God, help them to know your love in Christ. God, if I, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know that love of Christ, that they're sitting under the burden of sin, and they want that sin taken away, Lord, show them Jesus. Show them that he is good, that he died in their place, that he rose from the dead, and that he can save them from the judgment they deserve. Oh, God, please show them that love and help them to turn from their sins and embrace the all-good, all-kind, all-loving Savior. And then they, too, will pick up their cross and they will follow you because they know just how much you love them. Help us, Father, to love like you love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.